Well, on the heels of five Game 7s, five fairly epic Game 7s, Grancher and I will, will begin this latest episode of the VanCast by arguing about what we started on Twitter last night, my friend. Um, of course, Drancher says, well, every higher seed won and every uh, every division winner won. And no, every- not every higher seed won. In fairness, in fairness, two teams that are recent cup winners managed to upset the opponents that were higher seeded. And they were yeah. higher seeded by an average of four and a half points. So, yeah, so they're close. I get it. Only the final eight it, it includes five elite teams. An additional, by my estimation, five genuine elite teams, another team that had five, uh, sorry, 110 points in the New York Rangers and whose opponent was down to their third string goaltender and lost their best forward for the majority of the series. And was up 3-1. Yeah, but they were 110 point team. This isn't some Cinderella story, right? Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And the 104 point team with the best player in the world. Yeah, and and through all of that, we still oh, had Oh, sorry, sorry. And the 109 well, I, and the 109 point team that won the cup 3 years ago and just generate scoring chances like no other team, more efficiently than any other team in hockey despite the fact that they don't really have uh, an elite five-on-five gear. So we're so I I, I guess we can justify everybody that, teams. So we can justify all of them. However, we still had five game sevens. Yep, two of those games went into overtime. Four of those games are one-goal games. One of the games was a two-goal game. These were close games that could have gone either way. These outcomes were not predictable. Hell, you went four and four in the first round in your predictions. Yeah. So well, I don't take chalk. I don't no, no, just I, take chalk. What's that? I don't just I don't just take chalk. Sometimes I pick matchup specific ones where I'm like, well, I don't think this team's as good, but I think the Kings can frustrate the Oilers. Uh, I think that aged pretty well, uh, even if I got it wrong. Right. But, they could, so, but the point is, the Kings could have won that series. They were in position to win that series. Well, and, and then they got stomped six two on aggregate in the deciding games. Drancher. The, the Dallas Stars got stomped in Game Seven based stomped. on everything, everything other than the first ten minutes Destroyed. of overtime. And yeah. in that first ten minutes of overtime, they had the game on their stick repeatedly. Wow! And we could they be singing a completely different tune in overtime, Farhan. We could com- we could completely sing a different tune. Uh, Sagan had this puck on his stick. We had what is it, Pavelski, late in the third period, uh, had a breakaway, got stopped. I mean, it could have gone that way. It, it's like. Bad teams can find ways to win. Underdogs can find ways to win. Now, I'm with you. They well, can't go on a run all the way to the end. Well, then, then so that's the point, really. Like, No, it's not the no, point. No, no, no. That, that, that is the that point. You, that is the you, point. Because, Farhan, this sport is so unpredictable and so variable on a micro level that, of course, anything can happen in one game. Anything can happen in one playoff series. There's no debating that. Of course. It's just yeah, but you can't tweet, extrapolate. You can't extrapolate that to say that once you get in and anything can happen with anything to imply you you could get hot and win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, you but can't. you use the fir- you you use the first round results to say, yeah, because anything can't happen. Now, no, anything this- doesn't always turn into winning the cup. And that that's the thing is that, you know, we, it's it's always been about building a cup team and, and that you totally make sense. You don't make a team to just sneak in the playoffs and go on a run. Correct. But when you get to that point, when you get to that point where you just want to get in, you use those examples of anything can happen. Because, you know, for here, here's the one thing, and the Toronto Maple Leafs are living proof of this. 
Actually, I shouldn't say they are because they never get past the first round. But the deeper into a round it gets, and the closer they get to it, the more it hurts, right? So if you're the Montreal Canadiens and you get all the way to the Stanley Cup final, yeah, for those players, you get that close and you lose, it hurts. But that run is something the city absolutely loved. And those moments matter. And they didn't win at the end, but every round they celebrated. And every round you had your sea of whatever they want to call it in any given city with your plaza parties. And it's awesome. And fans cling to that. They love every minute of that. As they should. dismiss that by saying, well, it was predictable. The Cinderella, it was clock was going to strike midnight. Right? I'm not dismissing that, Farhan. I'm not dismissing that. Well, it feels like you are. Well, but I'm not. It only feels like I am because people react like babies when I say this. Because it's not about don't enjoy the playoff run that your team has. You're saying it was pointless. I'm not saying it's pointless. I'm saying, I'm saying this. I'm saying that the way the Montreal Canadiens were constructed, right? And the way the Toronto Maple Leafs were constructed in the 2021 season, right? The Montreal Canadiens win, and uh, that series, uh, remarkably, right? They go on to, to the cup final. They play an unbelievable series against Vegas. And then they need overtime to win one game in the final. And now they're rebuilding. Their GM's gone. (laughs) Their coach is gone. There was nothing sustainable about that. And so, yeah, enjoy it in the moment for sure. But know, know that that wasn't a cup team, right? Like, know that. And they did. They figured that out pretty quick this season, right? Obviously, there's extenuating circumstances with Shea Weber, with uh, with, uh, Carey Price. But... Here's the thing that, you know, needs to be remembered, right? Like, it's not the team that has, you know, um, that has the dog in them the way the Montreal Canadiens did for two, three months that's going to be your next cup winner. Like, your next cup winner is going to be the loser team that can't get it done in the playoffs for a long stretch, right? Like, the loser team that's there knocking on the door with an elite core and a good supporting cast and the right pieces, and they get in the playoffs, and year after year, they fall short. And if you do that for long enough, if you knock on the door for long enough, you become the St. Louis Blues, right? You, <laughs> you become the Washington Capitals. You become the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now, not guaranteed, right? We know that the Vancouver Canucks had an elite core and was there year after year after year knocking on the, knocking on the door two decades ago. And, or I guess a decade ago, a decade ago, and they didn't get it done. The San Jose Sharks did it for 15 years, didn't get to the mountaintop, but that's how hard it is to win the cup. That's how hard it is to win the cup. You have to have everything you need, elite goaltending, or at least goaltending that gives you elite performance in the playoffs, uh, a stellar supporting cast, elite core. You need all of that. And then. You also need all the stars to align for you in terms of the bracket, in terms of the matchups, in terms of your injury luck. You need all of that stuff to go your way all at once, and then you win. And then, and then you masterfully win, and then for, from them, then on, you're the team with the playoff gumption, the way the Washington Capitals looked against the Florida Panthers this year, right? You're, or the Tampa Bay Lightning looked against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like All of a sudden, the narrative flips, and everyone forgets all of the disappointments you endured on your way up the climb. Like, the point is not that it doesn't matter when a team goes on a miracle run. Like, I probably am not doing this job if not for a miracle run that the Canucks have in 94. Like, obviously, that mattered a ton to seven-year-old me, 
I, I genuinely don't think I'd be here if I hadn't seen how that run moved people. So I'm not immune to that. And it's not that I'm making fun of anyone for enjoying or rooting on their team, no matter how good their team is. I mean, I still pick the LA Kings. They're one of what the third least likely team in the playoffs to win the cup. But, but don't confuse the team that gets hot at the right time in the playoffs with a team that actually has a shot at winning the cup, right? Like don't, and, and certainly, certainly when an executive tells you this, when an executive trying to sell you their plan says, well, anything can happen when you make what you get in and anything can happen. No, it can't. You have to be a great team to win. You have to be an elite team to win. And an elite team, by the way, wins in both the regular season and the playoffs. Like, it's not different. The teams that win in the playoffs aren't different than the teams that win in the regular season. The great teams win all the time because they're great. It's, it's baffling to me that this take is remotely controversial. The Stanley Cup is not given to mediocre teams. You have to be a great team to win. It. Go yeah, build a again, great team. Go anything, root for that. Anything can happen is different than winning a Stanley Cup. And and that's the whole point of it all, right? Is that you no, think anything can happen if it doesn't of, if it falls short of a Stanley of Cup? Just get in. Hang on, let me finish. You had happen. to run. You had you had to run. Let me finish. I'm just the, saying that's that's not true. The, well, yeah, but that's that's how your first tweet I'll came let across. You finish so long as you're not lying. <laughs> when you when you look at last night's games, you know, like those teams we've seen teams go on a run. And it's funny because we talk about the Washington Capitals; they could never get out of the second round. And we looked at that team when they finally got over the over the uh, hump and won. It almost felt like a run because very little was expected of that team going into the playoffs. Why? Because they never win. And then all of a sudden, they got the goaltending they finally needed. You know, the coach kind of you know pulled off some magic in terms of just his experience and you know one shot deal as that coach for that team at that time. They got yep. in, and then they they haven't made any kind of a run. They haven't got back to a conference final. Right. The St. Louis Blues. Yeah, they were knocking on the door. Once they won, guess what happened the next year? They lost to the Vancouver Canucks. You know, so when you talk about sustained excellence, right, it, it doesn't always equate that way. Right. Sometimes you can you can just get there, but it isn't always indicative of who you are, because it's who you are, what you were until you got there. Or is it what you show after? The Kings were nothing. They got into the playoffs they right were at not the nothing. end. Listen. For all the underlying metrics around the Kings, they barely snuck into the playoffs. And it's crazy to think that the trade deadline turned their team around. And we talk about how teams are built. That team got over the top based on what they did at the deadline. If they, they didn't gave, do what they did at the deadline, they wouldn't have got into the playoffs. But then all of a sudden, the we went to them. Canucks a massive scare with an incredibly young team in the playoffs the year prior. And they were poised to make the playoffs until a massive injury to Kopitar derailed their season the next year in 09-10. Like, anyone paying attention to hockey knew that this Kings team was a team on the rise. Then they start the, uh, uh, or sorry, and it was 10-11, uh, they missed the playoffs. 11-12, uh, 11-12, um, so sorry, it was 09, they give the Canucks that massive scare in the first round. Wayne Simmons the, the six, the all over game, the ice. They lost in six games, yeah. They lost in six games, but they were unbelievable, right? Like, it took that Henrik Sedin, you remember that Henrik Sedin end-to-end goal? Like no, it they took were the Alex Settler hit. It took the Alex Settler taking one yeah, game over. I mean, That's they, what changed the Kings it. were awesome in that series. That was not, and that that was a Canucks team good enough to like meaningfully win, right? I mean, they bumped into the Blackhawks. The Blackhawks win um, the go all the way to the conference final that year. 
I know. Yeah, the conference final that year, like that that Canucks team was good enough to make real noise if they'd gotten by Chicago. They were up three one against Chicago, right? And no, they lost or, that no, series. Sorry, in six. they were up two one and yeah. had a lead with ninety seconds to play against Chicago, and then um, Patrick Kane intercepts the Willie Mitchell pass. Anyway, neither here nor there. We're not reliving Canucks playoff uh, disappointments of the past. The the Kings though were a team on the rise for for a couple of years prior to prior to that, and then they acquired Richards, Mike Richards, and they couldn't score, and they had a slow start, and then after they got Jeff Carter, they were the best team in hockey, and everyone paying attention to the underlying numbers knew that. But they we all did. They they made the playoffs by a point. I I hear you. I know what you're. I, no, I you, hear you're you. not because like it it, it turned. They were they were safely in. They were safely in on the last day of the season. The San Jose Sharks and them were jockeying for position. They were jockeying for position. Drancher, the last day of the season, anything could have happened in the weeks leading up to that that would have kept that team out of the playoffs. So then, oh, maybe they they were a fifty-eight percent fucking control of shot attempts team, like we all knew. But this team was so close to missing. Like they were so close to missing. So like that has to matter somehow, right? Like you don't think some luck. Happened along the way just to get them in, well, sure. and they needed they needed a they needed a big time player L- to be added to every, that roster at the deadline. Luck is the everything, and then day. everything everything changed because then their power play went crazy right after the trade deadline. Once they made that change, their power play went crazy. <laughs> you're you're focusing on the micro, yeah, but that's because they barely they they got in on the micro. They got in on the micro, and now we're calling them an elite team. And look, for me, they backed it up because two years later they won again. again. Twenty fourteen, Farhan. That's what I just said. I go. They backed it up because they won again two years later. They were they were dominant, and you could see it. You could see it. This isn't hindsight. I picked them to win. I I called them over. I said the Canucks were overmatched before that series. Yeah, and and, I mean, and what happened also going into that series? No Daniel Sedin available. Yeah. And I picked them thinking before I thought Daniel Sedin was going to miss the playoffs. If you go read that piece, that piece assumes Daniel in. I'm not saying Daniel's out so they're going to win. That's not the logic. The logic is I think Daniel's in and the Canucks are overmatched. Yeah, listen, you, you certainly for me, I saw the Canucks ripe for an upset. And we're doing a Canuck podcast, so we can get into that. Um, for, I, because at the end of the year, they forgot how to score. I remember listening to Henrik Sedin interviews afterwards telling me when they won two to one that, yeah, this is exactly how we need to play. We need to show we can win these kind of games in the playoffs. And I'm like, you guys don't know how to score. And this is fiction to think that this team is what it was last year, even though they won the president's trophy. So as I saw it, and you know, I, I remember seeing all the, the, the big time prognosticators because you weren't big time then like you are now. And the, the only person of note that picked the Canucks, or sorry, that picked the Kings was Helene Elliott, if you can believe it. And I know she wasn't following the analytics trail. Um, but look, I could see that being ripe for an upset. And I'll give you that because the Kings backed it up two years later by winning again. Right. So so I'll give you that. They, but, they, were, they were one of the teams of the first part of the decade. I mean, and you could see it happening. You could see it coming. This the the Kings were not the Kings were not a Cinderella. They were an elite team that started slow. The Blues were not a Cinderella. They were an elite team that started slow. Yeah, I, I don't know that they were elite yet. Like you can't you couldn't call them that until they made the freaking trade. Right. Like they weren't an elite team. And I know they had the injury, but you can't call them that until they got to that point. I and they still needed Jonathan Quick to stand I on his head. I called them that. 
I called them that before the series. Yeah, but I, so, I don't know that you were right in that moment. Hindsight may prove you right, or they just may have gotten better and they may have been able to sustain it. But I don't think you can say a team that needed to get into the playoffs on the final day of the year was an elite team. A team that all of a sudden turned its season around based on some moves they made at the trade deadline. It's hard to call that, an, you know, saying, yep, it was always an elite team. It wasn't always an elite team. See, it again, became elite. This is a game. This is a game that takes the most unpredictable route possible to logical conclusions. That's what hockey is. Game to game, 10 games, anything can happen, right? The best team in the league can go one and nine. The worst team in the league can go nine and one. We see it every year, right? This is a game that takes the most unpredictable possible path to logical conclusions. It's only as the sample expands, right, that quality and talent win out. And that's what makes the playoffs so cruel. You can be 113 point team, right, with a 38 and 8 record at home, and you can, or a 38 and 5 record at home, or whatever the Wild had, and you can get into the playoffs and it can last six games. Six games. It's so cruel. And be, you can have the best team in the 100 year history of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and, and you're out in seven for the fifth consecutive season. That's right? awesome. Or, or, you can survive just long enough, just long enough, partly due to luck, partly due to talent. You survive long enough that you actually need to play 25 games to win the Stanley Cup. And when you have to play 25 games to win the Stanley Cup, talent matters. All of a sudden, qu- control matters. Team quality matters, right? It's this, it's this amazing thing. The tournament is short and arbitrary and yet lasts long enough that you need to be great to actually win it. That's how this works. That's how this works. So you can't go in there aiming for eighth. And, you know, as that, if that's your bar, because I remember, do you remember a couple of years ago, I asked Jim Benning specifically, I was like, why, do you, why, why does your organization never talk about winning the cup? And his answer was, you, 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 first, you have to get in and then anything can happen, right? And it's something that's echoed by executives across the league. It, it fundamentally is used to justify mediocrity. And it's, and it's a pleasant lie told to fans. You know, the reaction that I get is people being like, well, you're taking all the fun out of sports, like taking all the fun out of the game. It's like, really? Like, I have fun drinking a beer and watching the game. I, I, I barely miss these playoff games. I can't wait to watch them. And I view this this way, like. It's still fun to enjoy with my family. You know, it's still a, a killer to go to a game, you know, take take my nephew, go with buddies. Like, it's amazing. Like, hockey is so fast. It's so thrilling. The fact that I don't think that uh, some chump team that got lucky, the fact that I don't think the Dallas Stars had a hope in hell of winning the Stanley Cup. And yeah, sure, they got it to overtime. But man, were they outclassed. It took them 60 minutes to have as many shot attempts as the Calgary Flames had in 22. Yeah, 22 were, minutes. There were like, two earlier games cow. in that series. There were two earlier games in that series in five and six where they were clearly the better team. Yeah, right? Again, anything can happen. One game. So, so but, uh, but yeah, over and, and the they, over the over the total over the total estimation of that series, the Dallas Stars got a historic goaltending performance. Probably the best goaltending performance of the last 15 years. That was incredible. To, and, and, and all it got them was a first-round exit. Hey, like, if you, if you get that lucky and don't win, you suck. You suck. 
look, I think we all predicted that Calgary was going to win this series, but the bottom line is, is we could be here doing this podcast with three out of five different results. Like the games were that close. The overtimes were that close, right? Marginal call gives the Rangers a power play. You know, like the games were that close and they could have gone the other way. And then you got two more weeks to live and you are a thousand percent right. I will tell you this, like a bad team can't win the cup, right? Yeah. And the Dallas Stars two years ago went and did this, right? So how did we view the Dallas Stars? Some people viewed them as a bad team. Others said, well, you know what? Like, and you, you saw my predictions before the game. I'm like, God, they were the only team with a negative goal differential. And I know those aren't the numbers that matter to you, but I looked at it and I'm like, this team barely got in. Uh, and when when you just look at the math across the board, I mean, they shouldn't have been there, but they were that close. And two years ago, the same core got to the Stanley Cup final, losing to a really, really good elite Tampa Bay team. So now you look at this team and they're like, they've been there before. This core has been able to get through the playoffs and get all the way to the end. And, and it didn't happen, but when teams go on those kinds of runs, when they get an opportunity to go through that again, you kind of look at them a little bit differently. And I don't think any of us thought they were deep enough to win the Stanley Cup, but you and I could be having this conversation differently because those games were that close and they could have gone that way. And none of those teams that lost really had the opportunity to win the Cup. I think Minnesota, in my opinion, I, you know, I shouldn't say that. Obviously, Toronto is talented enough that they could have gone that way, but their goaltending simply wasn't good enough. It was going to bite them in the ass at some point. Right. But you think you know, so? It, yeah. Like it wasn't good enough. It, you, it you, didn't. It didn't bite them in the ass. This round. It didn't, but it would have at some point. And, and just like you say, like if you were to gauge one through 16, the starting goaltenders in the playoffs. Campbell's down in the bottom three of the 16 teams that made the playoffs. Based on your like your thoughts on his ability to win and carry his team, and win those games that needed to get won, even by an elite team, right? If the Kings were elite, Jonathan Quick was ridiculous. Well, sure, but Jonathan and, Quick... Jonathan and Toronto Quick doesn't have average, that. And, Jonathan and Quick was an average regular season goalie. No, but in like, the playoffs, his career, he stood, he was he stood like, on his head, and Jack Campbell wasn't doing that. Did, Jonathan Quick's greatest attribute was that he never really got hurt for very long, ever. And so he was an average goaltender year after year, who played 65 games and never got hurt. And so he was always available. And so the fact that he was, you know, some years he would be great, some years he wouldn't be great. But over the sum total of it, he was like a 915 goaltender in an, in an era with elevated save percentage. And turned out to be, that, that was hugely valuable. And then he got hot at the right time two times in his career and won two cups. And will be remembered as you know one of the great, if not the greatest, American goaltender to ever play, uh, and and he deserves that, by the way, because availability and the ability to get hot when it matters, to be that big game goalie, was the best at taking the bottom of the net. But like there was no stage of his career where Jonathan Quick was as good as Henrik Lundqvist or Roberto Luongo, and he has rings and they don't, right? I mean that's again the nature of this cruel game. Jack Campbell, you know, Jack Campbell's career nine sixteen goaltender. Uh, having faced just about 4,000 shots. Thatcher Demko, who we talk about as the next one in Vancouver, and I don't think we're wrong to talk about him that way, right? Like, we talk about him, and and not just we, NHL talent evaluators talk about him as a, as a fringe top five goalie, right? Has a 9-12 career save percentage on just over 4,000 shots faced. Yeah, we've just seen him 
almost steal a series in the playoffs, right? Well, but I'm saying the gap between them is huge considering that Jack Campbell's career numbers are higher. I don't I like I don't think of Jack Campbell as being bottom three. I think of him as a pretty good goaltender. I think of him I'm talking about bottom three of the sixteen that are in the playoffs. No, I know, and I don't think of him that way. I think of Jack Campbell as, you know, in and around the top ten with just as good a chance of getting hot as anyone else. Yeah, we just have never seen it though. Like and um, if they'd know. won that that round, I mean, first of all, he was just as good as Andre Vasilevsky in that in that series, right? Well, and Vasilevsky he, it, ran hot and cold. He had some really like the games they lost. You kind of raised your eyebrows, and the games they won, he was really really outstanding. Yeah, and some even in some of the games they won. And if the if the if the Leafs had won, you you'd have gone into that series Campbell versus Bobrovsky, and I would have said I like Toronto's goaltending better. All right, Brent Drancher, let's look ahead now. Um, we want to get into? Do we want to get into Bruce Boudreau now, or do we want to get into the Battle of Alberta? Let's get you know. Let's do Boudreau before we get too deep into a Canuck podcast. Um, it's done. We touched on it last week. Um, you know, he's been involved in recruitment of players. Everybody has said the right things uh, at that press conference. He was on the golf course having a grand old time. You know, the comments that really struck me were when when he was asked. I think it was Kevin Willie that asked him the the basic questions about the criticism he received from management. And, you know, he, he said that he essentially, I'm paraphrasing, that he wasn't paying enough attention to the numbers, but the numbers as they related to the structure and as they related to the exits and the reliance on the goaltender, because he was too busy trying to win games, but that he is going to try and focus on those things a little bit more. He'll have a full camp under his belt and so on. What did you make of, of his essentially self-effacing reaction to it all? Yeah, I think, I mean, I look, it showed good humility. Uh, Boudreaux always comes off as amiable and relatable. And so, you know, I, I think the, I think it was a good answer. But I, I do wonder, I do wonder if this, I do wonder if there's going to be a sort of divide here going forward in terms of, what the goals of various people within the organization are. And this is sort of my concern with Boudreaux coming back, particularly on a one-year deal. Like, this is a guy who loves to coach. This is a guy who wants the opportunity to coach. And he's very good at it, right? No question. He knows how to win games. But if this team is trying to achieve something beyond... Uh, just winning anything, get in and anything can happen. <laughs> if they're trying to build a great team and a great process-driven organization, well, I do think what you need is is more than just the two points night to night, right? Like, you need to begin to install, um, you know, a system that wins you games in a sustainable manner. You need to, you know, have a variety of, uh, sort of player development things that are well thought out and executed with alignment and discipline. And in the case of Boudreaux coming back as a coach who, you know, is coaching for his next contract next season and a front office that's certainly making noises like they're focused pretty firmly on the long term, I do sort of wonder about that fit. And if the analytics talking point is just sort of the public tip of the iceberg, on a larger misalignment in in how this team is viewed between management and, and coach. And and you know, I say that also knowing full well that I think a little bit of a little bit of clash is, is helpful 
and useful and necessary in hockey, right? Like you have to have, and you'll always have a coach who, you know, looks at, looks up and down his bench and sees like a bunch of guys he trusts late in games, like to use the Tyler Mott analogy, right? Who sees a Tyler Mott and says, oh boy, he drives my third line. He's crucial on the PK. I send him over the bench like a first liner when we're leading late. I need that guy, right? And you also, and that's fine. Like a coach does need that guy. But a manager needs to know that they can replace that player. Uh, I need to get the third and I'll get you Brad Richardson, right? I don't think that's an unhealthy dynamic. But if there's a more significant misalignment in terms of what this organization's long-term goals are, and if Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux's on a one-year deal and isn't incentivized to think about that, then I do think you run into, you know, a, a, at least a risk of a more substantive misalignment that could be unhelpful for all involved next season. So, you know, we've identified areas the Canucks need improvement, right? Particularly on the back end, and and there's some other areas. But if you're let, Bruce, let, let's can can, can I just say like watching this playoffs, you know what else the Canucks need improvement in? They need some heavier guys. Well, didn't we talk about that earlier in the year? About yeah, they need some they need some heft to what they're doing, especially when you see them play teams like Minnesota, who ultimately didn't advance. Um, where does that fall in the pecking? But order? not just not just them, like Calgary. I think L.A. But where I, does it where does Edmonton? it fall in the pecking order relative to the other needs that they have? Like that Pre- doesn't all of a sudden get to the top of the up, list. Pretty high up for me, man. Like I'd say, it's not I'd what say, you said earlier when we had this discussion. Yeah, I, I just I, I I just don't think they have enough functional toughness. Because uh, it's yeah, not, I, it's I don't not, argue I'm that. Not, Listen, I, I don't I'm not argue saying that they need all. Nick Delorier. I, I and I still think their stick on puck game allows them to match up better with bigger teams than with fast teams. Like I think what I said last time was speed's the bigger priority to me, right? Correct. And that's still true. But they need both. <laughs> they need hard both. to get both in one off season. Well, for sure. I mean, hard to get both and upgrade your blue line in one off season, particularly when you don't have a ton of cap space. And and I'm dropping a cap column later, so we'll get into that shortly. But yeah, I mean, watching these playoffs, I'm struck by, you know, over seven games. I do think this roster, as it's currently constructed, would get worn down pretty significantly. Yeah, Drencher, I mean, it's hard to argue, especially on the toughness meter, because ultimately Luke Shen became this team's only tough guy. And there were times they wore down as the season progressed, right? I mean, you saw the injuries pile up for a team that outside of COVID was incredibly healthy all year. I know that Pedersen started out slow, but, you know, in terms of key players lost for extended periods of time, this team didn't have that. They had a few hiccups with, you know, Brock Besser along the way uh, and the COVID piece, but it wasn't until the end when they started losing Horvat and, you know, and it, it it's... This team started feeling it a little bit later in the year. And and yeah, you knew at some point they were going to wear down. Their luck wasn't going to be able to continue. And they need more than Luke Shen because then you're paying, playing him an inordinate amount of time and putting his role up there where it shouldn't be. But it it's tough. I mean, this team has a lot of needs. So my question to you is we have a sense of what this team's needs are based on Bruce Boudreaux and how he likes to coach, right? We know he's not a heavy matchup guy, um, but based on his style over a myriad of stops, not just Vancouver. What does Bruce Boudreaux think the Canucks' needs are? One, let's just say his it, Boudreaux's top two needs. Go more creative defensemen. A. B. I think more speed and more size. <laughs> on on That's- on the depth on on especially among his depth forwards. Uh, yeah, I mean certainly the. 
when you look at how they wanted to forecheck, and when you look at what that third line at one point with Mott and Highmore and Lamico were able to give them, and not that those guys are elite, elite skaters, but they're certainly, they look elite on this roster. Sorry, who are you talking to Mott and Highmore? Yeah, like I'm just yeah. saying that line was able to play with speed. It when, well, having those guys, like team speed is such a fickle thing that having those guys in the lineup, and, and you know, you'll remember they weren't in for some of the Canucks' worst stretches for sure in the first Absolutely. 25. But all of a sudden, you put those guys in and you put them in your top nine, and all of a sudden, this team wasn't getting crushed or skated off the ice by faster teams. They still had trouble with those faster teams, but it wasn't just a you knew it was coming pounding night after night. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's amazing the impact that one or two fast guys replacing one or two non-fast guys like you, when those guys come in and replace Chase on and, you know, um, Dowling, right? It's just like, oh, boy, wow, this looks like a totally different team. It's something you have to be so careful about. It's something that I thought would get Tampa skated off the ice in the first round is that they, I thought, didn't have enough fast guys with, with how they sort of changed their roster. Now, they found ways to slow it down. They found ways to grind it out. I now am I now am more confident that Tampa Bay can beat the Panthers. Uh, in fact, I'm picking the Lightning now wow. as a result. But um, just because just because it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Like it didn't happen against the Maple Leafs. I don't think the Panthers are going to be able to skate them off. And as such, I think Tampa has a shot now. So so good for them. Uh, the the fact is though is that um, is that team speed is a very very fickle thing. You have to be very very careful with it. And the Canucks don't have enough of it, but but you can rebuild it really fast if you get two or three guys who can really move and replace some guys who can't with those bodies. You wanted to get into salary cap and where the Canucks are and potentially creative ways to get out of it because we keep hearing reports about Canucks having talks about one of their two high-priced defensemen. Well, yeah, and, and me and Rick uh, at The Athletic on Friday sort of poured a little bit of cold water on the OEL thing. I, mm-hmm. I think the OEL thing is... Um, unlikely and not just because of the obvious reasons structurally like I think the team was really happy with his performance this season um one thing that I think is interesting I think there's a sense that the club needs to upgrade the right side of their defense no not again which not was a the case huge, last year not a huge shock but I think that the I think that the overall right side question will be dramatically impacted by what happens with Tucker Pullman. And and I think management in particular really likes Tucker Pullman. Like a lot more than, you know, certainly the way that we chatted about him this season would indicate we do, right? Like I think I think there's this thought that, you know, if you add Pullman with Oliver Ekman Larson, could that be a top four pair? Potentially, right? Uh, if you have Pullman with Dermott, is that a really good third pair, like a, like an advantage for you? I think there's the thought that it could be. So I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think when you look at Rutherford's blue lines historically, there's been a lot of guys like that. Like, you know, isn't Pullman just a better skating right-handed version of Brian Dumoulin at the end of the day? I mean, there's not a huge difference there for me. Um, so I can see why that would be the analysis or that would be the internal viewpoint. But I think there's real concern about Pullman's status. And, and his agent told Dollywall and I last week that 
Um, Pullman's trending well. I hope for his sake, like just as a human being, I hope that that's right. I hope that he's able to resume his uh, his playing career, his Canucks career as normal next season. But in the event that he's not, and even in the event that he is, I think the right side remains a real area of concern for this team. I think there's a desire to have Myers slotted a little further down the lineup, or at least like even if he's your top pair five on five defenseman, at least not playing as much as he was last season. Um, I think there's a desire to insulate him better. Um, and certainly if Pullman's out, I think there's a real concern about how they fill that. And one thing that I won't be stunned to see, Farhan, is if the Canucks go out in free agency, if they look around the market, if they don't see a lot they like, and I, and I can tell you now, I don't think they see a lot they like necessarily, or at least not a lot they like that they think they'll be able to afford, right? I wouldn't be stunned if we see Ekman Larson get a significant run, a significant look on the right side next season. Wow. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know what his history is playing his offside. He's uh, done it. You know, yeah, and, and how has he done it? Yeah, he's done okay. Eh. And would you potentially pair him with Quinn Hughes? I mean, I, I, that's what I'd do. Probably the best way to insulate him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and the best way to get more out of him offensively. And do you think there's much discussion about Myers? And we've talked about the fact that next year he becomes much more tradable. But if they are looking to move cap space and they are looking to upgrade, but again, you're, you're taking one out of your right side, uh, which you th- a player you think can play as long as he's not playing the minutes and role that he currently is, do you think there's much in the way of dialogue as far as that player is concerned? I'm not exactly sure. I think the club, so I've modeled it out and I, I do this every year. I do my um, my annual cap modeling column. And here's where the Canucks are at going into this offseason. It's not really a cap crunch. For the first time in a long time, the Canucks are going into this offseason and won't need to... They will not need to like perform roster surgery to upgrade this lineup for the first time in three years. Certainly for the first offseason that I've covered the team, the team will go into this offseason with enough cap flexibility that you could make those tweaks that Boudreaux wants, that you could make some upgrades, that you could meaningfully improve this roster for next season without buying out a Jason Dickinson, without reallocating cap space or any of those highfalutin concepts we like to bring up. The way it breaks down really is that the Canucks will go into this offseason without having made a single move. And I've modeled it out. I, I give them... Uh, 66.9 million in space committed to 17 skaters, which leaves them with 15.6 million to sign six players to flesh out the roster, right? This assumes, of course, that Michael Furlan remains on LTI. Now, that's not bad. 15.6, you can sort of stretch that out a bit, but, you know, once you do Besser at somewhere between six and a half to seven and a half million, right? Uh, and then and then obviously you're going to have Rathbone, Lamico and Highmore in at something like 800 to a million right between them each each basically the the 15.8 goes fast. And, and and so I sort of model them as having somewhere between five and a half to six and a half million in functional cap space with which to sign two players. So there you go. That's money that you can use to meaningfully upgrade. Right. Like if you want a tough minutes defenseman, well, you've got some money to do it like. You've got some money to acquire a guy in a trade. You've got some money to go out and spend in free agency. Uh, you've got some money to send out a guy and take back more salary in return, right? Which might be a way to get off a of Dickinson, 
uh, or a way to get off um, you know, one of the Canucks' inefficient contracts. That's without making a salary cap shedding move, right? About, about five and a half to six and a half million to play with, uh, with two or three players to sign, right? And obviously, you can add a million, basically, if you're going out to sign three. So it would be six and a half to seven and a half million for three guys. Well, that's that's pretty good. Like that's, you know, two good middle six forwards and, and, and you can sort of place a lottery ticket on a defender. And yet the Canucks have to be really careful because where things are going to get tight for them is next season. Right. Beyond this year, where, when you've got Besser expiring, you've got Miller and Horvat, and then you've got to start positioning yourself for Patterson's expiry in the summer of 2024. Right now, right now. With uh, a Brock Besser extension plugged in at let's say six and a half million three years, right? That's that's low, but let's let's plug that in because that's what the evolving hockey model uh, has in terms of his most likely cap hit in terms of their contract projection model. So let's plug six five in for for Besser. So if we go look at the summer of twenty twenty three, we're looking at a team that's going to have twelve guys signed and twenty eight and a half million in cap space. Right. That could go up to 30 if you buy out Dickinson, but 28 and a half million. And uh, that sounds great. Right. Like that sounds awesome. But say you use five of the five and a half million to six and a half million in cap space that they have this summer on a deal for a guy that lasts or a deal for two guys that lasts for more than one year. So you're making a multi-year commitment this summer, which you're going to need to do if you're uh, upgrading this roster. Right. So you so you right away take five and a half million off of that twenty eight five. Now, are you sign are you extending Horvat and Miller? We'll take another sixteen out, sixteen and a half maybe. All of a sudden, you're back to seven million. You've got fourteen or fifteen players signed, and you've got Rathbone, Hoaglander, uh, Dermot, and if the club is lucky enough to get him, Kuzmenko, all to extend. Well, all of a sudden, you're right back where you started. Cap crunch. So this is like a, a moment where the Canucks have real cap flexibility short term, and yet they have to be really careful about it. They have to be really disciplined for the first time ever in eschewing the win-now mentality that, should it continue, will only guarantee that this team wins never in terms of how they manage this. This has to be an off-season in which Vancouver's newfound cap flexibility is treated very much like the fragile thing it is, as opposed to, you know, the club freewheeling into a, a moment in which they actually are entering the off-season with some ability to upgrade their roster without going through the rigmarole that they've had to in the past. All right, let's take one more break, uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the coaching moves and look ahead to round two of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So, Drancher, I want to get into the Battle of Alberta in a second, but let's talk coaching real quick. I'm not expecting the Leafs to make wholesale changes. I think Sheldon Keefe is still going to be this team's coach. I think Dubas is still going to be this team's GM. Um, you see any scenario where they blow these guys out because of what's happened in these playoffs? I mean, I, I, I do. I do. Because the frustration there has mounted to such a high level. In terms of the market, right? In terms of... Now, I know that media guys were all lining up to say like, well, they can't make changes. Look how well they played. Um, but I, I'm sure there's a fair bit of internal frustration. Now, the Toronto situation is really interesting because it's very different from what you have in most NHL markets, right? Like, the, the Maple Leafs are effectively owned 
by a conglomerate of like a board of technocrats, right? This is not a one emotional billionaire sort of making all the decisions. Although I know Larry Tannenbaum sort of ascendant among that among those board members. This is a more business minded enterprise, I, I think it's fair to say, than than what you have in some NHL markets where if you lost in the first round five consecutive years, some emotional owner would be like, you don't have the stuff. There's not enough dog in you. <laughs> right? Uh, is that a fair description? Oh, for sure. Yeah. The fact that it's owned differently allows for a measured approach. A measured approach and uh, a quantitative approach. So, you know, in the past, for example, we know that Kyle Dubas has gone to the MS- MLSC board and explained what PDO is, right? Like they've been brought along slowly in terms of how this team wants to approach winning and how they want to approach winning is build an elite core, keep it together, surround it with talent as best we can and, and give ourselves as many shots as we can to get lucky. And they haven't gotten lucky and maybe there's something more going on there. You're certainly well within your rights to suggest there's not enough dog in them at this point. But in that situation, I could see the board saying, okay, right? Like, okay, we liked how that went. We think you guys played well. We think we're close to something here. Let's go. Keep going. You're still in charge. What about but, Brendan Shanahan, though? Well, that's, mean, the, that's, Kyle the, that's the fly was his in the guy. Kyle Dubas was his guy. Um, you know, brought him in at a really young age, took a huge leap of faith onto the analytics side. You know, and I think there was a feeling when, when Dubas was hired that, look, if we don't do it now and put him in this position, somebody else will. He's that well regarded around the league. But, you know, he's the guy that's got to go to, to, to the, that board and make the case. Do you think he changes his mind at all? Um, well, he is the guy who goes to the board. Um, you know, I, I'd imagine the dynamic is very interesting at the moment um, because of the frustration level and because I'm sure, you know, I'm sure everyone is annoyed. I'm sure everyone wants to win, right? I mean, everyone wants to win, especially uh, guys as competitive as Shanahan and, and Dubas. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's fait accompli that things stay the same. I think there could be some changes. Um, we'll see, like, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But, uh, you know, I, I think at this point I'd be pretty surprised. I'd be pretty surprised with how they played that, you know, that they threw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and in the event that they decided to fire Dubas anyway, I mean, I think that would be a massive mistake. Like it, it same thing with the wild and Bill Guerin, right? I know everyone was sort of gnashing their teeth after the wild lost in seven and uh, understandably fair enough but with like with the way the nhl works now the whole test is can you find guys like can you find guys affordably who can play at a high level to complement your team right and you look at minnesota and it's like this constant flow of affordable talent that that contributes at a really high level for them like you look at Kulikov you look at John Merrill uh the way that they filled the gaps on their blue line Ryan Hartman Frederick Gaudreau a top six center they got for uh, uh in the in the scrap heap um you look at Toronto Kasha um Camp Bunting I mean the contributions they got from guys mined for basically nothing in free agency and they do it every year they do it every year the wild have done it multiple years why have the Pittsburgh Penguins had so much success? That's the main reason. Like in the hard cap era, for me, that's the GM's primary task. The team building 
thing where you go out and consistently find high-level contributors affordably within your cap structure. Fit as much talent as you can on the ice under the upper limit of the salary cap. And and for me, like Garen and Dubas are guys who I know do it year after year. Like they're sharps at the table. I, I just don't think you should. I, I don't think you can lose those guys willy nilly because that's the hardest thing to do. And those guys nail it consistently year after year, which is why I have a fair bit of regard for them. Uh, so, you know, for me, I think they'd be making a mistake. I don't think you want to lose that guy, uh, particularly at a, a pretty crucial juncture for your organization. Uh, and I think Dubas would have opportunities immediately. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes. I, I would not expect significant changes, but I also wouldn't be shocked by them. A couple of things before we, um, I, I do want to talk to you a bit about Pete DeBoer getting let go in Vegas, but uh, just uh, Rick Dollywall is uh, posting, and I, I, I don't know if this is ahead of um, their show, just a conversation he had with uh, Jim Rutherford earlier today. Um, let's see. Uh, Brock Besser on Besser's contract. Hard to say right now on conversations with his agent. They're ongoing. We continue to work away at that. Uh, Rutherford on analytics. It's part of how decisions are made. Uh, it's also about what we see and the group thinks analytics is not the final way we make decisions. Um, on Kuzmenko, we'll give it our best shot, see where it goes. We've given him the reasons to come to Vancouver. And on the playoffs and what he's seen, it's confirmation on what we need to do. Play with structure. You cannot win playing wide open hockey. I still like a lot of the things we're doing here. Anything jump out at you? Nope. All, all expected. I mean, the Besser thing, you know, we, we sort of reported that there was some positive uh, signs. But I, you know, I don't want anyone to confuse that with, you know, a... Um, uh, like a sense that this is going to be easy. It's not. And there's still a very real possibility that this ends up with Besser accepting his qualifying offer, right? Like these are going to be tough talks, but I do expect those talks to heat up this week, um, you know, further. And I think that's sort of the most urgent priority now uh, in it. Now that the Kuzmenko pitch is done and Bruce Boudreaux's coming back, I think the majority of the club's efforts will turn to Besser. And then I think Miller and Horvat thereafter. Uh, you know, I think the club would really like to know what extensions look like for those guys. And, and you know, I just laid out that cap sort of dynamics, the club's cap positioning to you. It makes sense when you look at it, right? Why the club would think that that's so vital here. Uh, so, you know, I, th I think that'll be sort of characterizing much of the next couple months. And then we'll get into the offseason and, and see where they go. Rutherford, uh, but, on, Rutherford on Miller, the final decision on him, doesn't have to be made until the trade deadline, but we'll know more in the summer. Uh, re reiterates that Miller, Besser, and Horvat, those are the big three. So no shock there. I mean, they, they nope. certainly have those options with Miller. Uh, if you're Miller's camp, you want to get it done this summer coming off a 99-point season. You don't want to wait until next year and try to renegotiate at that point. Um, and, you know, you've, for the Canucks, you've got different value points if you move them now versus moving them at the deadline. But, um, you know, they've got that flexibility and they can see where they're at as a team, but it becomes dangerous, right? If you're right on the cusp of the playoffs and you don't have anything done with Miller at that point, like you can't take the chance to let no. him go for nothing. Like you just no, can't do definitely. that. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I think, I think you, I think you probably want to make a decision this summer. And while, Rutherford said, we, we do have time. The final decision doesn't have to be made into the deadline. We want to have a sense of it before that. I think that indicates a pretty wide-eyed view about where this is going, right? The club needs to have that figured out prior to, prior to the end of this offseason, in my view. 
Pete DeBoer gone in Vegas. I don't think we're overly surprised based on the way they've been trending nope. and how things went down this year. Barry Trotz uh, was replaced, I guess, by Lane Lambert uh, in um, in Long Island. Uh, Trotz obviously isn't going to be coming to Vancouver because Bruce Boudreaux is staying. But does Vegas become the logical landing spot or does he wind up going back to Nashville? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's got to be Vegas. Would you trots back in Nashville? I don't know. Well, about that. people like there's people in Nashville that when the decisions when uh, of course when of it course. first happened, I mean, he's talking there. about him he going should back. Be. Yeah, but also, but also, I mean, Nashville feels like a team that needs to turn the page um, and and forward, not backward, and always twirling, twirling toward freedom. Um, the <laughs> the uh, Vegas Vegas makes a ton of sense to me. I, I wonder if they'll back up the Brinks truck there. Uh, they probably should. Uh, yeah, I don't disagree. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about the next round and let's talk Battle of Alberta to start. Um, who do you like? I mean, for me, and we'll get Danielle to write these down so that we we know which ones you got wrong and right, uh, because it's only elite teams that are going to advance. <laughs> um, Correct. Uh, Calgary is just far more complete. The Tanev thing makes me a little bit nervous. I, I do Likewise. think it matters a lot to that team. Um, I don't know what you're hearing in terms of his availability later on in these playoffs, but... That is a far more complete team with far more elite goaltending. And regardless of how good Connor McDavid is, Calgary should win this series. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I've got Calgary, but I've got them in seven. Like, I think it's going to be a long series. I now seven's partly a hedge because I don't know what's up with um, with uh, Tanev. Tanev. But um, one thing one thing I'll say is if you're going to have. If you're going to make your edge in net hold up, you can't have Eric Goodbranson taking 14 shot attempts under any circumstances the way he did in Game 7. Fair. You know, like, as good as Ottinger was, when Mark Stone and Eric Goodbranson are leading your team in shot attempts, you're also putting a goalie in a position to look unbelievable. Oh, stay in the West, and let's go, um, let's go Colorado and uh, St. Louis. Do the Blues have any chance in this? I don't think so. I've got, the, I've got Colorado in five. Uh, me as gentleman well. sweep gentleman sweep me as well um let's go to the east and we'll start with the rangers in carolina i'm taking carolina oh yeah the the, the shots are going to be 45 20 every game and you know shesterkin might still make it last six but carolina is materially better i'm picking them in five and last but not least the tampa bay lightning team which broke your maple leafs hearts against your former <laughs> employers with yeah. Florida holding home ice advantage. Who do you like in the Battle of Florida, which will probably be better hockey than the Battle of Alberta, if not the same level of emotion? I'm, I'm going to take six. I'm going to take Tampa in six. I think um, Tampa in six. Yeah, I, I just I didn't love. I was prepared to take Florida, but I didn't like how Florida played against Washington. I thought Washington frustrated them immensely with a pretty basic one three one. I thought the Panthers struggled to play the game that was in front of them. And while they still eventually overpowered a team that, you know, whose best days are behind it, like if the if the Washington Capitals are cagey enough to frustrate you that way, to to make you require three pretty hefty comeback victories to win the series in six, well, the Tampa Bay Lightning are a cagier version of that with far better goaltending. You can't play with fire like that against this Tampa Bay Lightning team. I just I just don't know. I just don't know if the Florida Panthers like the Florida Panthers to me, the way they played in that first round, I worry that they're the team that everyone thinks Toronto is in terms of their readiness to win. Right. And 
Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I just I think the Lightning are going to have enough curveballs, enough changeups, enough off-speed stuff to overcome. You know the the fact that their fastball is very hittable by a Florida Panthers team. I'm going to take Florida to win just because we can't have all the same picks. But um, right. Uh, yeah, it's so Florida. unpredictable. Anything can happen, right, Farhan? Well, no, they're both you're, you're, you're they're, deviating they're both off. Accept, your, they're both exceptional teams. You're deviating. Yeah, no, that that's the one series with two elite teams. Um, but but the overall the overall thrust here, right, is the overall thrust here is, um, you know, we're picking all elite teams to advance. Like of my five elite teams remaining. You and I have have agreed that four of them will advance. And the only series we disagree is when two of them are competing. Which brings us back to where we started and in full agreement, you with me. <laughs> I'm going to let you go. Uh, we'll, we'll do this again on Wednesday. Look, if you're looking for other pot options that don't involve Thomas Drance, check out a much more, you know, measured intelligent approach from Ian Mendez and Julian McKenzie as they recap the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs and preview the second round Monday on the Athletic Hockey Show. As for us, say thanks for listening, or in this case, thanks for listening to us yell at each other in the first segment. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just a dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. We'll be back on Wednesday, which is day one of round two. And... Um, should be a lot of fun this second round of the playoffs because, you know, we've got five elite teams and we're picking the same teams to win, except for in one case where each of us is picking an elite team. So uh, we may do a live room later in the week. If not, we may get a guest uh, as well. So, um, but one way or the other, we will be back Wednesday for Drancer. I'm Farhan. Thanks for logging on. Thanks for tuning in.